Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has been talking to the disciples about this great news, this good news, to go out and tell about this kingdom that is coming, that is near, that is here, right among you. But then he issues them this warning. Because to preach the good news, to live the good news, requires that you at least be aware of the consequences. Jesus said, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave to be like the master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, the devil, how much more will they align those of his household? But have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, Proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus concludes in verse 39, Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Would you pray with me? Open our hearts to hear song, scripture, sermon, but above all, spirit. The spirit that can take the one word, the living word, and awaken people, transform lives, restore communities, bring harmony to this world again. Lord, let your word resound to us and in us and through us. We would make ourselves, after your disciples, the ones you first taught to pray this prayer, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Some years ago, when my mother was still living in Ohio, she called and wanted to come down for the weekend. I was surprised on Friday morning after she arrived, she said, I'd I'd like to go with you to your church. I haven't seen your church building in a while. Okay, I said, and we came up, and it had been, in fact, been a little while, so I was able to show her some of the renovations and things that have happened in the life of the church. She's never really been a huge fan of this church, no offense, but she kind of envisioned her son in a church with a bigger parking lot. (laughs) Maybe a little taller steeple, you know. uh, She just had, she loved her boy, and she wanted what she thought was best for him. But she said as we looked around, she goes, Joe, you've done such a good job in this church. I'm really proud of you. She said, there's just one thing that just always makes me curious, but, oh, never mind. I'm not going to ask it, she said. (laughs) 
I said, well, you can go ahead and ask it. I know what you're going to ask already. She said, what do you mean? You don't know what I'm going to ask. Of course I do. You're going to ask me the same question you've always asked me. She put her hands on her hips and said, what do you think I'm going to ask you? I said, well, you're going to want to know how we can believe in the Bible and still welcome gay people and do all these crazy things. She said, well, that's exactly it. And off we went to the races. (laughs) We talked, as we always do, is about the 50th conversation like this, only this time I talked more about God, my understanding of God. And at the end of it, she said, well, I'll say this. Your idea of God is more gracious than any I've heard. I appreciated that. It was, a, it was a moment, obviously, I'll never forget. It is hard to picture God differently when the only pose you've seen of God is the one who loves some of the children of the world, not really all the children of the world. A God who loves us, who loves Christians, who, who loves our kind, those who do as we would want them to do. But the reality is, when you open the Bible and read the teachings of Jesus, you come quickly to this conclusion that the God Jesus knew intimately was this God of enormous generosity and abundance, this God of wild inclusivity, a God who said the kingdom is here and among us and even within us, who wasn't trying to hide God like hiding a ball from other people, but said, hey, It's right here for all of us, this beauty. And so come on, be with us, join this party. Let love and generosity and harmony be the way that forms the world because that's the way the world was intended to be formed. Come on, let's do it. But even in the midst of all that joy, Jesus had to warn his followers that the good news of a generous God would be a threat a threat to a lot of people, and especially the people who are on the top, those who are in the in crowd, those who have the right bloodline and rituals, those who think of themselves as coming from superior tribes, if you will. They have more to lose. What you're saying messes with their equation. It compromises the structure that the world's based on. They're not going to like it. They're going to come after you, Jesus said. They're going to turn the tables on you. They're going to call you the devil. They're going to call you Beelzebub. I love it that in the message version of the Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson translates it, they're going to call you Mr. Dungface. I don't know why he translated it that way, but it gave me a chance to say dung face from the pulpit, so I took it. (laughs) They're going to call you names, but you know what? Don't be afraid. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Speak anyway. The truth is going to come out. What's whispered, you say out loud. What What you hear in a whisper, stand on the roof and tell everyone about how we've hoarded God way too long how we've reduced God to some kind of tribal, exclusivistic, petty deity who's disconnected and, frankly, unlovable. That's not God, said Jesus. This generous and gracious God, let the record show we did not make this up. This is not some liberal concoction. This is not just some Richard Rohr stuff or Joe Phelps stuff. 
This is who God has always been. And as example, I would use a continuation from the passage that Perry read for us earlier about Sarah, who gives to her husband Abraham her slave named Hagar. And when Hagar has a child, they name him Ishmael, and he is the heir of promise at this point. He's their child. He's all they have. There's no other child. But then there's a new wrinkle. Sarah is pregnant, which means there will be two sons. And if you know anything about these early chapters of the Bible, anytime there are two sons together, you can anticipate a fight. Whether it's Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, on down it goes. There's always a battle because it seems like there's this spirituality of scarcity. There's not enough. There's not enough of a blessing. There's only one blessing. So we have to fight for the blessing or cheat for the blessing. There's only enough land. There's only enough resource. So we have to fight. Beginning with chapter 21 of verse 21. The Lord dealt with Sarah as God had said, for, did for Sarah as God promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to Abraham. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son whom Sarah bore. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham had a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But then this. But Sarah... Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom Hagar had borne to Abraham. Sarah saw Ishmael playing with her son Isaac. And she went to Abraham and said, Cast off this slave woman and her son. For this son of a slave woman will not inherit alongside my son Isaac. Two heirs. Ishmael, the first one the son of Hagar, and Isaac, the beloved son of Sarah. And so what happens is what we would expect at this point, right? Isaac's going to trump Ishmael, the beloved son over the half-son. Those are the rules. And we can expect that Sarah will double-cross her slave girl, Hagar, because she can, because she has the power. She'll twist the story and shift the blame. Hagar did as she was told, but now somehow it's her fault and the boy's fault who had no say in the matter. Send them away, she said. You can hear Sarah's kind of blind ambition, her ego filtering in in her decision-making. There's a sense of privilege and specialness. This is my son who will inherit the promise. So it goes the way we we think it's going to go. And we know it's going to go this way anyway because we already know the narrative. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Ishmael, and Jacob. We we know how this story is going to go. But this is where the story takes what we might call a sacred shift. Something happens that we shouldn't expect to happen. Abraham follows Sarah's command. He gets up early. 
gets some food and a canteen of water for Hagar and puts them on her back and sends her away with the child. Hagar wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she left the child under a shrub and went off 50 yards or so and said, I can't watch my son die. And she sat down and began to sob. And then the next verse, my favorite verse. And God heard the boy crying. And God heard the boy crying. The angel of God called from heaven to Hagar, What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy and knows the fix he's in. Up now. Go get the boy. Hold him tight. I will make of him a great nation. And just then God opens Hagar's eyes and she looks and she sees a well of water. And she goes to it and fills her canteen and gives the boy a long, cool drink. Then this line. God was on the boy's side as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became a skilled archer. He lived in the Paran wilderness, and his mother got him a wife from Egypt. Jesus didn't make up this generous God. Richard Rohr didn't make this up. Highland didn't make this up. Genesis 21 is nestled right in the Bible, right here at the fountainhead of the story about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as if it's a sign to say to us, remember now, remember, God is not bound. God's not bound then or now by our own national and tribal and human judgments and by the egos of all the Sarahs in this world. God is not bound. God is on Ishmael's side too. Earlier this morning, Sharon Sanders shared with me a Facebook post from her son, John. Most of us here know him as John Marshall because we've known him since he was a little bitty kid. And when I say here, many of you will remember the scene (laughs) at the children's choir performance where Rick Finkley was introducing the children to the, to the congregation in the next song where they were going to sing. Here they all were, John and Eli and Stephen and on down to all these kids. And you, those of us who were here watched it as John kind of measured and started to sway. And all of a sudden, John launched himself onto Rick Finkley's back right in the middle of the announcement. It's one of the great moments in the history of this church. John grew up. John is a tall, handsome, incredibly beautiful man. And a few months ago, this church commissioned him to go serve along with our field personnel in the country of Macedonia, predominantly Muslim community. It is an opportunity for John to bear his light of God in that particular place. But today, he posted pictures of him with kids. John's working on a cow farm. He's doing all kinds of different things with children, with the cows, with ministry. He writes, as Ramadan comes to a close, I'm thankful to have friends who welcome me to their table for iftar. Do you know that Abraham's son Ishmael is 
the father of the Muslim people. We're connected in ways that we don't know. And the Genesis writer sticks this story in. He could have left this out. But he puts it right in there to say God is always more generous, more inclusive, more loving than we can ever be. And all that we can do, really, is aspire to be more like God. To, in the words of Jesus, lose our lives in this way of love so that we can really find our lives. It's all through the Bible when you start to look at it. Did you notice it in the opening psalm that we read together responsively from Psalm 86? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all, all who call on your name. Steadfast love to all. Hey, by the way, I know the word for steadfast love in Hebrew. Hesed. Are you impressed? I took two years of Hebrew and I know one word. Hesed. Steve Brown over here is reading it in the Hebrew. Tyler's back there reading it in the Hebrew. I know one word. I have trouble with English, so I'm, I'm glad to know one word in Hebrew. But you know what? If you're only going to know one word, if you're only going to know one Hebrew word, Hesed is a pretty good word. Loyal love. Gathering together all the qualities of God. Generous, kind, merciful, loving. This sacred energy of life surrounds us. This one in whom we live and move and have our being has hesed, steadfast love to all who call on God. Like the rejected and cast off Ishmael. God was by the boy's side as he grew up. Just as God is by all boys' and girls' sides, including you and me. How might God's promise change your life this day? Let's pray together. May steadfast love, Hesed, be so felt by each and every one of us that we are awakened and empowered and given the courage to shout from the rooftops the good news of the gospel. May we be doers of the word and not simply hearers or speakers only. May we live the faith faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.